0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $158 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. While a lot has changed in 2020, one constant remains in the stock market, and that's October Volatility. After a powerful rebound from COVID-19 lows in March, the mega-cap momentum-led rally has lately been showing signs of fatigue. Factor in the election results we're all anxiously awaiting and what that could mean for markets and the economy, as well as a spike in COVID cases both here in the US and in Europe, and you have all of the ingredients for the VIX to rear its ugly head in the coming months. Now, one way to partially offset that expected volatility is by owning blue-chip companies that pay regular dividends. And I'm excited to welcome back John Baldy, a Portfolio Manager for ClearBridge's Dividend Strategy, to guide us through the equity income landscape. Now, John, I believe this is your first time in the virtual podcast booth, although you're just a few exits north of me off the Garden State Parkway here in New Jersey. Is that, is that right? That is, Jeff, and thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, being here. Now, great to have you here. And we're recording on the eve of the election, but regardless of the outcome, dividend equities can play multiple roles in a diversified portfolio, especially in today's near zero interest rate environment. We'll delve into these details in today's podcast, the value of dividends in volatile markets. Now, what a volatile week that we've had, and quite frankly, a volatile month that we've had. But I'm going to start this podcast in a little bit of a different direction. I'm going to start it by talking about Albert Einstein. I know you don't usually think about Albert Einstein and dividends, but Albert Einstein had a very important quote during his lifetime. He said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. I mean, that's a very powerful statement. But I'm going to change that statement. I'm going to say compound dividends is the eighth wonder of the world, because if you look at the last 25 years, from 1994 through 2019, The S&P 500 has had an annual return of 7.7%. But if you include reinvested dividends, that jumps all the way up to 9.8%. That is a huge move, all things considered. But investors have been ignoring that trend. In fact, if you look at dividend payers, they've underperformed this year. Investors have gravitated to tech and tech-related stocks benefiting from COVID-19 trends like e-commerce and work-from-home. In fact, if you look at the Russell 1000 growth versus the Russell 1000 value, over the past year, the Russell 1000 growth has outperformed by more than any time that you've seen, even surpassing the dot-com bubble. Now, John, tell me, is this more sentiment-driven or are fundamentals being challenged through a slowdown in economic activity?
1: That's a great way to start this discussion. I think that what we've seen thus far is that there are clearly sectors of the economy and companies that are having problems associated with the COVID-19 implications on their business models, on their sales. But there are other baskets of stocks beyond the, the tech space, beyond the work-from-home benefit space, that are doing fundamentally well. And, you know, We think of baskets of staples like Procter & Gamble and Mondelez International, and utilities that are acting relatively defensively, as they should be because that's the way they're set up. So those companies are doing fairly well in the environment, despite the implications on the economy from COVID. And we're still finding surprising levels of underperformance. Just to put an exclamation point on the numbers that you referenced there, we broke down the S&P between dividend-paying stocks and non-dividend-paying stocks on a year-to-date basis, effectively through the end of October. And the differential is so outstanding that I think it's worthwhile to point out. Non-dividend-paying stocks now comprise about 23% of the market cap of the S&P 500, and they're up over 28% on a total return basis year-to-date. If you look at the dividend-paying stocks, they're up 2% on a total return basis year to date, a surprising 25-plus percentage point differential between the two baskets of stocks. And we don't think the economic fundamentals are that wide. So we're focusing on that what we don't believe is an aversion to dividend equities, but more it's just that the basket of names that happen to be doing best in this environment happen not to pay dividends. So we're still focused like lasers on dividend payers and what they can bring to
0: an overall balanced portfolio. Wow, it looks like investors are not heeding Albert Einstein's advice. Well, if you look at today's price action, maybe they are starting to heed the advice. You're seeing a pretty sharp rotation into value out of growth uh, today so far after all the the mega cap tech stock earnings announcements yesterday. But one thing that we've, we've clearly seen uh, this week has been volatility. And if you look during presidential election years, it's not uncommon to see volatility spike dramatically in October and November. In fact, if you think about it, investors will typically start to reposition their portfolios in anticipation of a new administration and the policies that they will bring. But with this election result, it's going to be drawn out over a period of time. So you're probably going to see even higher volatility. Of course, this comes on the back of record daily COVID cases in the U.S. of 90,000 surpassing what we saw in the summer. And then also, there is zero visibility right now on what type of stimulus, if any, we're going to get to and through the election. So John, maybe talk to me a little bit about dividend equities, how they can provide some balance when you have uncertain environments like we're, we're living through today.
1: Sure. If I think about the numerous risks associated that we face as a whole of investors in light of the environment with economic uncertainty, fiscal uncertainty, the election, foreign relations, the timing of a vaccine, all these things weigh heavily in terms of our thought process that our approach to dividend investing encompasses. And what I say is turbulent times emphasize the importance of a disciplined approach to dividend underwriting. We look for companies with strong balance sheets, with payout ratios that are sustainable, probably somewhere around half of cash flow, and defensive business models that produce recurring revenues such that when you get spikes of economic activity one way or the other, good or bad, that these companies are able to weather the storm, power through, and come out on the other side, all while maintaining a fairly attractive dividend. And if I put that into context in the environment today, we have record low interest rates and a promise from the Federal Reserve to keep those interest rates low for a very long period of time. So with interest rates being low, bond yields are less attractive than ever. And in a lower growth world, we think that dividends are going to make up a larger part of equity returns on a go-forward basis. And also, amidst the numerous points of uncertainty that we face with the economy, with the fiscal environment, with everything that we've outlined before, we do believe that dividends provide strong levels of downside support. So all attractive characteristics that we think should allow dividend and dividend-paying equities to perform well. You mentioned the, uh, the turn that we're seeing of late, and we think that's here to stay.
0: Yeah, it, it's funny you mentioned low bond yields. Uh, you know, As of the end of the third quarter, this is a, a surprising statistic, is uh, 58% of S&P 500 stocks at the end of the third quarter had a dividend yield higher than the 30-year treasury. I mean, we're not talking five-year treasuries, 10-year treasuries. We're talking about the longest duration sovereign bond that we have here in the U.S. And, and, and to your point, John, I think, obviously, as we continue to be in this low interest rate environment for a long period of time, and it, it appears that the Fed is in no hurry to raise rates anytime soon. I think dividend-paying equities are going to be an area that people look to for income and, more importantly, growth of income. But one thing I want to talk about here is the fact that you were seeing at the beginning of this crisis, a lot of companies start to retrench from their dividends, right? Either dividend cuts or outright suspensions. Back in March, you saw 12 S&P 500 companies either cut or suspend their dividends, April, it was 24. May, it was 23. And that trend has moderated a little bit as the economy has gotten better. But energy and a lot of these dividend payers are are facing pressure to maintain their dividends in this uncertain environment. So how has the active approach and dividend strategy allowed you to Maybe target healthier companies that can still pay, maybe even increase their dividends in an environment where you have a recession and a budding recovery. That's a great
1: question, Jeff. And I think our approach to the attributes that we looked for before companies with strong balance sheets, sustainable payout ratios, and defensive business models led our energy exposure to be solely focused on what we're going to call energy infrastructure companies. And these are companies that are not in the E&P sector, the exploration and production space. They're not upstream. They're not downstream. They're what we call midstream companies. And these companies that we own, we own three stocks in this space. These companies are predominantly long-haul natural gas pipes. And these pipes have multi-year contracts with good counterparties, such that cash flow visibility off of these pipes is very high. And you boil those ingredients together with a reasonable amount of leverage for the businesses that they have, payout ratios that are manageable, call it in the 50 to 60% range, and the prospects for growth over time as some of these contracts get reset. It's a good formula that we feel fits what we're trying to accomplish with dividend strategy, which is an attractive upfront yield, the ability to compound that yield over time, and to do it in a defensive manner. So thus far, all of our energy holdings have maintained and actually increased their dividends thus far in 2020. And we feel confident that we're going to look to 2021 and see further increases. It won't be robust increases. We're not talking high single-digit levels of increase, but we could see low single digits of increase, which in a relative world is a huge victory for us. But I think it all goes back to how we approach dividends and what we look for. Again, a balance sheet that can weather a downturn, a payout ratio where you're not looking to the markets for external capital to finance either your growth because you're paying out so much or a model that is highly dependent on strong visible cash flows or or set up to generate strong visible cash flows. And we think these energy infrastructure names that we own accomplish that without the associated uh, volatility and exposure to the underlying commodities, which is very difficult to predict.
0: Yeah, the, the energy companies that have maintained and increased their dividends, that's not what you would expect to hear, <laughs> given the dramatic drop in uh, the price of oil and the, the pressure, quite frankly, that you're seeing on that sector overall. You would expect, as the global economy starts to normalize with the release of a vaccine, that uh, there's probably some decent price appreciation in a lot of these names as we get back to uh, an, a normalized environment. One thing I, I'd, I'd like to talk about here is you know, Warren Buffett's old adage, be greedy when people are fearful, be fearful when people are greedy. And it does seem that there's a lot of greed right now for tech and tech-related companies. And there's a lot of fear for these lower-growth, established blue-chip company type of business models. So obviously, with the market being led by tech pretty narrowly, has this afforded opportunities for you to target some of the more undervalued dividend players? Yes. In a short answer, yes. I
1: think one of the areas that has sort of been brushed aside in light of the market's narrow focus on tech and tech-related companies has been the utility sector. And historically, if you look at dividend strategy and our, our exposure to utilities, it was very sort of balanced, no, no huge bet, despite the fact that the companies are generally defensive, they provide good levels of income. But we found a ton of opportunity there as 2020 unfolded in light of what we were trying to accomplish with the portfolio. Again, it goes back to an upfront yield that's attractive, The ability to compound that yield over time and what you're paying for it up front are you appropriately balancing the risk and reward? Utilities have historically always done well and been revalued higher in a low interest rate environment. And as 2020 unfolded and it became more and more clear that interest rates were going to be low for a long period of time, we were surprised that utilities had lagged so heavily. And that, you know, with the market trading north of a 20 multiple and these stocks, you know, the utility sector trading somewhere between 18 to 19 times, depending upon what names you're looking at. We found a lot of opportunity there and we put some money to work in that space. Again, by definition, utilities have regulated rates of return. They are defensive. And some of our exposure is even decoupled from the amount of energy usage. So we had a valuation discrepancy. We had pretty good balance sheet exposure in terms of the way these companies were running their business. We found a dislocation. And the stocks are starting to narrow the gap to the market. They've done better of late. We still think there's room to run. And part of the reason is that is that you usually you think about utilities as relatively low growth. In some states, and in, you know, and this is spreading very very rapidly, there are huge renewable programs that states are mandating in terms of carbon-free emissions X number of years into the future. That requires a tremendous amount of investment on behalf of utilities. And utilities get paid on how much money they invest. So we think there's a pretty good runway here. For perhaps a little bit above average rates of growth for utilities or certain utilities that we feel that we own and have identified, and that should lead to a pretty nice compounding of dividends well into the future.
0: Can you share and you know a name of a, an attractive utility or or undervalued dividend payer that uh, you have in the portfolio?
1: Sure. Our approach to utilities is sort of barbelled where we have what I'll call best-in-class, phenomenal execution, great management teams, strong balance sheets, companies like NextEra that has a very large renewable platform. It's growing nicely. They have a Florida utility that they are managing exceptionally well. There's another high-quality utility that we have called Wisconsin Electric. Again, a solid management team executing great in their footprint. And then we also found some stuff on more the value side of utilities, whether it be a one-off in terms of where the company's footprint is two companies that I'd put in that basket that have exposure to wildfires in California, but nonetheless, we feel that exposure has been mitigated in the future based on some recent legislation that went through. A company like Edison International in California, or Semper Energy, which has a California and Texas footprint. And then there's a small New Jersey utility, PSCNG, ticker PEG ticker PEG, that we feel was overly discounted because they had some of their exposure on an earnings front. fossil fuel power generation. And they announced recently that they're going to dispose of that asset such that it becomes more and more the earning stream reflects more and more to look like a regulated utility, which trades at higher valuations. That's a handful of names that we feel are relatively positioned well for today's environment.
0: You mentioned renewables, right? And obviously green energy, a carbon-free environment. I mean, these are key components of uh, Joe Biden's platform and what the Democrats would like to achieve should they win the White House and uh, obviously Congress as well. So I'm going to ask you an unfair question here, John. I'm, since I'm the, the MC here, I get to do that. I'm, I'm apologizing ahead of time, but I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball <laughs> and tell me, you know what's your outlook for the election? You know We all don't know how things are going to transpire. Trump winning against consensus expectations four years ago is case in point. But how do you see it playing out? And how, and if at all, does that inform your approach in dividend strategy? I'm glad you
1: mentioned up front that it's an unfair question. So <laughs> here's the way I'm going to approach it and say, what we try to accomplish with dividend strategy and our positioning is to be mindful of how either regulations, rules, or laws could change And how that could impact our portfolio. So take, for example, on the healthcare front gets talked about a lot, a high degree of uncertainty as what is going to happen with respect to healthcare reform on many different fronts. And one of the fronts that's often in the forefront of investors' minds is what happens with drug pricing. What we do when we uh, make a healthcare investment or we screen our portfolio is we look for drug price exposure and we try to make sure that our bets that we have in the healthcare space, the pharma companies that we own, are positioned for growth outside of higher drug prices, such that unit volume is driving growth. And so take, for example, a company like Merck, which has a phenomenal oncology drug called Keytruda. It's a $15 billion drug, and it's probably on its way to be north of a $20 billion drug. We want to make sure that that growth is not being driven by the price of Keytruda growing up every year. It's driven by the unit volume, meaning it's Being given to more and more people, and so when we screen the portfolio, again we try to be mindful of changes in administration and and how the rules could change. Not necessarily trying to predict
0: the outcome of the election and position therein. Yes, trying to predict the election is a a bit of a mugs game, I would say. Yeah, but uh, if you look at the market price action since the first debate in late September, the market actually has made some interesting moves. Believe it or not, value is outperforming growth by about one percent. Smalls outperforming large by about four percent evens are up about nine basis points and the 10-year treasury believe it or not has gone from 65 to 85 basis points so that to me signals that the market is anticipating a, a large fiscal package potentially that could boost growth It'll be interesting to see how things develop over the next couple of weeks I want to end this podcast uh, with Albert Einstein since we started with Albert Einstein I, I think it just makes sense to end with Albert Einstein in the rule of 72 who he has been misquoted of inventing. It actually was invented by an Italian friar 400 years earlier. Uh, But nonetheless, the rule of 72 tells you how many years are required for an investment to double, right? So you take 72, you divide it by the interest rate of your investment and that's how many years until you get a double. So if you look at the 10 year treasury right now per the rule of 72, it's going to take you 85 years to double your money. The S and P 500, it's going to take 39 years and uh, dividend strategy it's going to take 27 years and, of course, doesn't take into consideration the growth of income that a lot of those companies embed into their structure. Um, so with that, John, I just want to say thank you so much for, for joining me here in the virtual podcast booth. Um, I love your perspective. I, I, I sincerely hope that we could do it in person again uh, next time next year. Hopefully. That would be great. Jeff, thank you for having me. No, thank you. And I, I want to thank everybody for, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. I hope everyone has a safe and happy Thanksgiving. And we hope you'll continue to join us throughout 2020. And as always, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of October 30th, 2020, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.